Donald Trump Jr., the idiot son of Donald Trump Sr., took the stand again on Monday, and I'm pretty sure he perjured himself. Everyone in the courtroom knew it. If I were Donald Trump Sr., I'd lend my gag order to my idiot son and see if it works next time he has to testify. For God's sakes, Jr., plead the fifth. I'll have more on Donald Trump Jr.'s foolish lies later on in the show. This is The Mop-Up for November 14th, 2023. I'm David Feldman. Please like this episode so I remain in your feed. Share it and make sure to subscribe to my newsletter. We've been putting it out again. Subscribe to my newsletter and this channel. Jacob Chansley, also known as the QAnon shaman who stormed the Capitol wearing a Viking helmet, covered his body in red, white, and blue. Well, he was sentenced to 41 months in prison for the role he played as the public face of the January 6th insurrection. He's done his time, and today he announced he's running for Arizona's 8th congressional district in 2024. Considering this is Arizona, I'm going to assume he's presenting himself as a common-sense Republican moderate. Tim Scott is finally out. No, not the way you were thinking. He's out of the race. Tim Scott announced he is dropping out of the race for president. He announced it late Sunday. His staffers were reportedly shocked since they thought he dropped out two months ago. Tim Scott's performance during last week's debate did not move the needle. And by debate performance, I mean nobody's buying the girlfriend, except maybe Tim Scott. I think he had to buy her. I think he's going to rent her out to Lindsey Graham, but uh, he was the only one buying that girlfriend. If you remember, Tim Scott is a black Republican and he was running on the premise that America is not a racist nation. Well, maybe America isn't racist, but the party whose nomination he sought sure is. I don't know what he was not thinking. Axios reported late last night that the candidate most likely to benefit from Tim Scott dropping out is fellow South Carolinian Nikki Haley. Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, I think I spray that on my car seat when the dog has an accident. I think Tony Fabrizio is an air freshener for my car. Anyway, Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, who now comes in autumn mist, Tony Fabrizio, in a secretly, <laughs> in a secretly leaked memo to donors, said Tim Scott's voters will migrate over to Nikki Haley, all two of them. Haley's debate performance was considered strong last week because unlike the other candidates on the stage, she was able to articulate a clear and forthright domestic and foreign policy agenda by calling Vivek Ramaswamy scum. Haley is reportedly bringing in huge donations and Axios says she's already booked $10 million worth of ads in New Hampshire and Iowa starting in December. Do you know how many people you could feed with that money? You're not getting the nomination. Give it to charity. Meanwhile, the Republican Party 
on the state level is starting to look like the Republican caucus in the House. And I'll have more on the Republican caucus in the House and the government shutdown momentarily. But according to the Washington Post, state Republican Party committees that have been taken over by MAGA Republicans with deep ties to Donald Trump are going broke and resorting to physical violence. Who would ever have imagined Michigan's Republican Party has had several meetings devolve into physical violence and is broke. The Post reports that the Republican Party in Arizona, which you might remember censured Rusty Bowers, the Republican Speaker of the State House in Arizona, for his refusal to assist Donald Trump in reversing that state's election results. Well, that party in Arizona has been pleading with the National Committee for a bailout. And Georgia's Republican Party is also broke and begging for a bailout. Rusty Bowers, a former speaker of the Arizona uh, House. By the way, Rusty Bowers is also what Carrie Lake's gynecologist calls her nether regions. <laughs> Rusty Bowers. I'm not, that's true. I'm not making that up. Carrie Lake, the election denier who ran for governor and lost. Now she's running for Senate uh, when she <laughs> when she goes to the gynecologist. He puts her up in the stirrups and says, OK, let's take a look at those rusty bowers. That is the truth. Meanwhile, Trump's campaign seems to be flush with cash. Trump's campaign seems to be flush with cash, and he's spending tens of millions of dollars vetting White House employees so he can hit the ground running on day one if he gets elected. According to Axios, the Heritage Foundation, as part of Project 2025, is working around the clock with Donald Trump to find 54,000 loyalists who are thoroughly vetted and ready to take over the administrative state on day one. Now, they're calling this Agenda 47, and Axios says the Heritage Foundation is preparing a pipeline of Trump loyalists who will be ready to pour into places like the Defense Department, the Justice Department, every agency in the executive branch. Axios says the Heritage Foundation isn't going to be putting forth any Rudy Giuliani's. That's what they're claiming. We're going to these are going to be competent, sane, rational conservatives. Well, I got news for you. They are all all 54,000 Trump loyalists are all little Rudy Giuliani's probably worse. Trust me on this. In the abstract, this army of 54,000 Trump loyalists sounds a lot more scarier than the reality is. When they're given the keys to power, God forbid, they turn out to be the same incompetent also-rans who populated the first Trump administration. We're talking Boris Epstein, Mark Meadows, Jared. They're all imbeciles. That's why they're Trump loyalists. Look, I'm not saying Trump isn't dangerous. He is. 
but he's not Ron DeSantis. If there were 54,000 Ron DeSantis loyalists ready to pounce on the administrative state in 2025, I'd be terrified. But thankfully, Ron DeSantis is not the front runner. And uh, again, if it were Ron DeSantis preparing his fascist regime, it would be scarier. Meanwhile, Trump on Monday promised that by the end of his next presidency, all the prosecutors and left-wing zealots going after him right now will be placed in mental institutions. Good. Somebody to keep him company. That will be nice. Jenna Ellis is one of the 19 co-defendants in the Georgia RICO trial, where she, along with Donald Trump and 17 others, have been charged with trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. Ellis is an attorney, and she flipped on Donald Trump. She's a rat. She was a rat before she flipped, and now she's an even bigger rat. She agreed to take a lighter sentence in exchange for telling the Fulton County District Attorney everything she knows to assist in the prosecution. Now, remember, the district attorney in a RICO trial isn't going to permit, isn't going to permit Ellis to flip unless Ellis has something. And ABC News reported late last night that they, ABC News, have gotten their hands on recorded proffer sessions. A proffer session is where the defendant and her lawyer tries to work out a deal on how she can cooperate in return for a lighter sentence. So ABC says that they saw parts of the video, and on the video, Jenna Ellis tells prosecutors that following the 2020 presidential campaign, the election, Dan Scavino, Trump's deputy White House chief of staff at the time, told her, right after Ellis and Rudy Giuliani lost most of the legal challenges, after the attorney general said there was no evidence of voter fraud, Dan Scavino told Jenna Ellis at the Christmas party, it doesn't matter because Trump isn't leaving the White House no matter what. ABC News says Jenna Ellis also had even more damaging information, but ABC was unable to get their hands on it. According to ABC News, Jenna Ellis attended a White House Christmas party on December 19th, 2020, where she saw Dan Scavino. He would be the deputy White House chief of staff. And she walked up to him and apologized for losing all the court cases that had Challenge the election results. Remember, this was December 19th, which means the Electoral College had been finalized. The Supreme Court refused to, refused to hear the challenge out of Texas. Biden was declared the winner. And Mitch McConnell, the Republican minority leader, publicly congratulated Joe Biden on becoming the next president. Ellis says she was convinced by then it was a losing battle but a very upbeat and excited Dan Scavino told her, no worries. He said, quote, doesn't matter. We're not going to leave. Ellis told prosecutors that she said to Scavino, I'm pretty sure that's not the way things work. And Dan Scavino, Trump's deputy White House chief of staff, said to her, quote, the boss, that would be Donald Trump, is not going to leave under any circumstances, we are just going to stay in power. Now, it sounds crazy to hear that, but that's what happened. 
That's exactly what happened. Sidney Powell is another attorney who was indicted down in Georgia. If you remember, Trump was planning to name her special counsel inside the Justice Department so she could prosecute Democrats for non-existent election interference. During her proffer session, and she flipped, right? She also flipped. And so during her proffer session with Georgia prosecutors, she said she was in constant contact with Donald Trump in the lead up to January 6th, despite Trump insisting since the RICO indictments, he never spoke to her. He never spoke to her. She's flipped. Sidney Powell was introduced to Donald Trump by General Michael Flynn. Sidney Powell was Michael Flynn's attorney when he was charged and then ended up confessing to lying to the FBI about uh, talking to the Russian ambassador while he was uh, a national security advisor waiting to take office. He had violated laws. If, if he was, Trump had not been sworn in yet. Michael Flynn was going to be the national security advisor, and he already began negotiating with the Russians and undermining Barack Obama's uh, foreign policy. And Flynn confessed to lying to the FBI about this. President uh, Obama, on his way out of office, warned Donald Trump, do not make Michael Flynn your national security advisor. Obama said he's not all there. And Trump figured, well, either am I. In the waning days of the Trump administration, General Flynn and Sidney Powell, her, his attorney, after he was pardoned, they attended meetings. This is what we've heard. They attended meetings at the White House to discuss ways Trump could declare possibly martial law and then seize the voting machines to possibly declare himself the winner or order new elections. Michael Flynn is currently suing CNN for defamation, charging CNN falsely claimed he and his family took a QAnon oath. According to Semaphore, General Flynn started a legal defense fund to pay his legal fees, and that legal defense fund started in 2018 and it ran until 2021. It is believed a lot of money had been raised through the QAnon community, and according to Semaphore, General Flynn's sister was put in charge of this defense fund. According to testimony, Flynn's sister said that after all of the general's legal fees were paid, after Sidney Powell got reimbursed, she, General Flynn's sister, took $265,000 for herself. She and she's not a lawyer. She said that her brother, General Michael Flynn, took what was left in the account. Unable to give a precise amount, Flynn's sister said her brother pocketed anywhere between $250,000 and a million that they took out of his legal defense fund. Now, you might remember that after Jenna Ellis flipped... A lot of MAGA Republicans who donated to her legal defense fund insisted she return the money they, do they donated. But Ellis's attorney, Michael Melito, 
He was the one who set up a page on Give, Send, Go. He raised, uh, raised $216,000 for her defense, which many claim is way more than it costs to guide a client through a plea bargain. But her attorney, Michael Melito, said, no, nah, keeping the money, not returning it. Meanwhile, The Hollywood Reporter is saying that Donald Trump's alternative to Twitter, Truth Social, is doing even worse than anyone thought. That's weird. I used to watch The Apprentice. He's a great businessman. According to The Hollywood Reporter, since starting in 2022, Truth Social has lost $73 million. In other words, it's owned by Donald Trump. It lost $73 million. That's how you know it's owned by Donald Trump. Truth Social was hoping to merge with a larger company, but the latest filings with the SEC suggests Donald Trump's company is unable to pay its bills. Shocking. Shocking. Trump's fraud trial continues in Manhattan And Donald Trump Jr. was back on the stand Monday. Dan Alexander from Forbes has been covering the Trump family's finances, or lack thereof, for years. He reports that on Monday during Don Jr.'s testimony, he and his lawyers presented false documents in Don Jr.'s attempt to give pretty much an elevator pitch for no reason, They've already been found guilty, but they wanted to play to the court of public opinion because the courtroom didn't need to hear it. They're already guilty. So Don Jr. did kind of like a PowerPoint presentation for Judge Arthur Angeron, attempting to paint the Trump organization as a successful company. And he perjured himself. It, 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 he made things even worse for Donald Trump and the Trump organization. According to the presentation, according to what Don Jr. said, and this presentation was prepped by the attorneys, Don Jr. claimed that Trump's 40 Wall Street, that's a building downtown, Don Jr. said it's a 72-story tower right across from the New York Stock Exchange, Dan Alexander from Forbes says, however, 40 Wall Street is actually 63 stories, not 72, and it is not across the street from the New York Stock Exchange. An embarrassing moment during the testimony on Monday when the New York State Attorney General's lawyer asked if the $123 million outstanding loan on 40 Wall Street has been turned over to what is called a special receiver because it was designated as an at-risk-of-default loan because the occupancy of Donald Trump's 40 Wall Street has dropped to a critical level. He can't fill the building with tenants. And Don Jr. said, "Um, yes, it's been handed over to a receiver, implying that Even though they got favorable interest rates, this building, this loan, looks like it's about to default. Uh, Then Don Jr. 
bragged about the golf course daddy built in Los Angeles. And one of the lawyers for the New York State Attorney General said, and I'm not making this up, they said, the Los Angeles golf course, is that the golf course where the 18th hole literally fell into the ocean? And Don Jr. said, um, yeah, the 18th hole fell into the ocean. He should have buried Ivana there. Donald Trump Jr. spoke of the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C.'s old post office as, quote, a great example of public-private partnership, unquote. Really? Because Trump had to sell the hotel two years ago. It failed. Is that an example, a great example of public-private partnership? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a perfect example of a public-private partnership. It failed. In the presentation, Don Jr. and the lawyer said, Trump National Golf Club in Briarcliff Manor, New York, is just 30 minutes from Manhattan. It's more like an hour from downtown. Dan Alexander over at Forbes says the lawyers presented Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas as a 64-story glistening tower, when in fact architectural drawings show it's considerably less with one drawing indicating the tower goes from the 8th floor straight to the 16th floor. Goes on and on. That was Don Jr.'s testimony. I've done term papers like that, where you had to write like a 32-page term paper, and I would number them 1, 2, 3, 6, 7, 8, 15, 25. It's an old trick. Uh, that got me the D's I so richly deserved. Uh, Don Jr. called his father an artist who views the Manhattan skyline as his canvas. Uh, Jackson Pollock, during uh, his testimony, Don Jr. Uh, said that his father always spots an opportunity and jumps on it like Purchasing the Majestic Plaza Hotel, Don Jr. bragged that his father bought the Plaza Hotel. What Don Jr. conveniently leaves out is that right after Don, Ju Don Sr. purchased the Plaza Hotel, it went bankrupt. Worse news for Kirsten Cinema, who quit the Democratic Party and is now running for re-election as an independent. Now, last week we reported that a secret internal Republican poll shows Kirsten Sinema coming in last in a three-way with Republican election denier Carrie Lake and Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego. Gallego came in first in that poll. Carrie Lake came in second. Kirsten Sinema came in third. And we are now hearing that nobody is donating to Kirsten Cinema's campaign. Her money is drying up. Speaking of drying up, I don't know if you know this about Carrie Lake, but every time her gynecologist puts her in the stirrups, he says, time to take a look at those, <laughs> at those Rusty Bowers. Rusty Bowers, one of the heroes from January 6th, Republican speaker 
of the Arizona State House, who refused to participate, refused to help Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis and Donald Trump throw the election in Arizona. And what did the Republican Party do? They censured him for it. That's Rusty Bowers. Former governor of New York, Chris Christie, visited Israel over the weekend. The trip was uneventful, except he was constantly mistaken for the Western Wall, and Orthodox Jews kept placing prayer cards inside of him. On the trip, Christie assured the Jewish people, Israel has no bigger friend or wider. Send your complaints. Send your complaints. You know where to reach me. Send your complaints. He's a bully. He's a bully. You're listening to The Mop-Up for November 14th, 2023. I'm David Feldman. Please like this so I remain in your feed. Share this. That's the best way to help this show is to share it with your friends uh, through social media or on email. Subscribe to my newsletter. It's coming out again. We put out two last week, so subscribe to my newsletter and subscribe to this channel. On Monday, it appears uh, the continuing resolution uh, to keep our government open might be in trouble or it might not. We don't know at this hour. It's early, early Tuesday morning. The continuing resolution that keeps our government running past October 1st, when the 2020, 20, the 2024 budget should have been passed, it expires this Friday. On Monday, it appears Speaker Mike Johnson decided to go ahead with pushing passage of what is called a clean continuing resolution. That means it would be pretty much identical to the clean continuing resolution that expires this Friday. Spending levels on a clean continuing resolution would continue to remain at 2023 levels. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said on Monday he is pleased that Speaker Mike Johnson seems to be moving in the Senate's direction where both Schumer and Minority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell want a clean resolution. Johnson's continuing resolution as of Monday seemed to have several working parts, and it's really not as clean as he insists it is. In many ways, I believe it's a Trojan horse. He wants to pass what is called a laddered or two-step continuing resolution, which sets a really bad precedent, and I'll explain why in a second. Johnson is also thinking of attaching a 2024 appropriations bill to the continuing resolution, and he's trying to force Democrats into passing an appropriations bill loaded down with right-wing, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ community writers. There are a lot of writers to this appropriations bill that he's trying to force the Democrats to vote for because he wants to bundle it with the continuing resolution. This is precisely what the Freedom Caucus rails against, bundling bills together, right? I've talked about it. It's like, you know, a cable package. I, I, I only want to pay for MSNBC, CNN, and uh, 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 C-SPAN. And the cable company says, you got to also pay for Fox. I don't want to pay for Fox. Well, then you can't get 
C-SPAN, CNN, or MSNBC. And that's what they do with these bills. They bundle them together and force lawmakers to make votes they don't want to make. Like, for example, Ukraine and Israel, they, they want to make it part of the same funding package, even though some Republicans are for Israel and some are against Ukraine, right? They don't want to vote for funding for Ukraine. They only want to vote for funding for Israel, but they're forced to vote. You got to take the whole package. Republicans want what are called single subject bills. They want to put an end to this bundling that forces members to vote for something they're against. Johnson is also vehemently opposed to bundling bills. But on Monday, he know, he know, he knew, he know, he know he had a far right extremist appropriations bill that Democrats were going to kill. So he tried to bundle it with a continuing resolution to force Democrats into voting for it. It's not going to work. Now, remember, since 1974, the federal budget each year is divided into 12 separate appropriations bills. You take the entire federal government and you divide it into 12 separate funding bills. And each bill has to be passed in the House and the Senate before the president can sign it into law. So Johnson's latest plan for continuing resolution is to have two steps. He's going to he's calling it laddering. One part of the continuing resolution will keep funding four bills, four appropriations bills until January 19th. Those four appropriations bills are pretty easy. I think they've all passed the House. It would be uh, the agriculture bill, energy and water, military construction, coupled with the Veterans Affairs bill, and then the bill that funds the Department of Transportation and the Department of Housing Urban Development. So those are four appropriations bills that have already, I believe, all four of them have moved through the House. So... He would his continuing resolution would keep funding those four bills based on 2023 levels until January 19th. And the idea is to light a fire under the Senate's ass to pass those four bills. Then the other eight bills that are being tied up in the House and they're going to get tied up in conference committees, those will be funded until February 2nd at 2023 levels. This laddered two-step seems innocuous on the surface, but like I said, it's a Trojan horse. It's part of a larger long-term plan to start stripping out all the parts of the federal government that Republicans hate. They're going to strip them out in order to defund or just fail to fund. Earlier, I talked about the Heritage Foundation and their plan on day one of the new Trump administration to have 54,000 lunatics vetted and ready to go to dismantle the administrative state. I think this laddered two-step continuing resolution, it, it's been pushed by the Freedom Caucus. I can't help but believe 
the anti-American lunatics over at the Heritage Foundation also invented this. This is... So where are we in the process? Well, we'll get a clearer picture later today. On Monday, Johnson delivered his clean resolution to the House Rules Committee, which met late Monday to discuss, and I'm hearing it did not go well for Mike Johnson. So I don't understand most of this, and because I don't understand most of this, please allow me to explain it to you. In the House, I'm going to explain to you what the Rules Committee is. In the House, they have strict rules regarding how long debate can last on each bill and strict rules on how each bill can be amended. And no two bills have the same rules. So before a bill makes it to the House floor to be debated and then voted on, it must first go through the House Rules Committee, which is considered by many to be the most powerful committee in the House. It's considered the gatekeeper, the traffic cop. So the Rules Committee determines when or if a bill ever makes it to the floor, as well as how it will be debated, presented, and amended. Mike Johnson's continuing resolution went to the Rules Committee on Monday, his two-step laddered continuing resolution. He put it before the Rules Committee on Monday. And the plan that he had was for the rules regarding the continuing resolution. He, he planned for it to leave the committee on Monday, be taken to the House for a full vote on Tuesday. The vote on Tuesday would not be over the bill itself. Congress would be voting on the rules of the bill. So you could vote yes for the rules, but no on the actual bill. But a vote on the rules is often a leading indicator of how the final bill will do. So you'll often find the speaker pulling a bill if the vote on its rules barely passes or loses completely. So before they vote on the bill, they vote on the rules on how we're going to vote for this bill. And once the House votes to pass the rules for the bill, the rules of debate on the bill are then established, and the bill is then introduced. And supposedly the bill, not the rules, the bill, the actual bill, is supposed to be, I think Speaker Johnson was planning for the, the actual bill, to be debated later tonight or on Wednesday and passed no later than tomorrow night. That's his plan. Theoretically, Johnson's continuing resolution, like I just said, can be passed late tomorrow. And Johnson would have kept his promise to the caucus, Republican caucus, his promise to give House members 72 hours to read a bill before they have to vote on it. Now, it is generally assumed that if the House today passes a clean continuing resolution, they pass 
a bill that keeps spending at 2023 levels, it will sail through the Senate and get signed immediately by Joe Biden. That seems to be received wisdom. There are also signs that House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries has said he will support Johnson if Johnson delivers a clean resolution. But we're talking about Republicans and eight Republicans and possibly a lot more have already said they're not going to vote for Johnson's continuing resolution. Johnson, to make matters worse, is down one vote. After the midterms when the GOP won the House, Republicans, I think, only had a five-vote majority. If I'm wrong, leave a comment and correct me. But I'm pretty sure they came out with a five-vote. Uh, no, no, they, they, they could only spare five votes. That's the way it works. I think they won nine seats and they can only lose five votes. That's what it is. But Republican... Mike Ezel of Mississippi will not be in attendance this week. He's going to go to his mom's funeral. Now, you, you would think he would have scheduled his mom's funeral, you know, during Christmas break. But no. Uh, so I hate the math on this, but he's dead. So, so Johnson is going to be down one vote. And my notes say... Please correct me in the comments section if I'm getting this wrong. It will only take four or five Republicans now to kill the bill. I have it down at four. Maybe I'm wrong. In other words, but it's like it was on September 30th when they were trying to pass the old continuing resolution. You lose four Republicans, the continuing resolution doesn't pass. So uh, the same way Johnson's predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, needed Democrats to pass the current continuing resolution our government is running on, Johnson is going to have to rely on some Democrats to help pass this bill. And that could prove a recipe for more, even more divisiveness in the Republican caucus. They talked about a honeymoon with this guy. Who knows how long it's going to last? Now, if Johnson can't get enough Republicans on board, and it's looking early this morning that he can't, that suggests he's more likely to introduce his continuing resolution through a process known as suspension. Do you remember suspension? Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant, 1942. No, sounds like a Hitchcock movie. It's not. It, 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 he's going to introduce the bill through a process known as suspension. I'm wearing it right now. It's my favorite cologne. Paco Rabanne, suspension. Um, so suspension means he's going to suspend all the rules for the bill. They'll have no rules. No vote on the rules, no checking in with the rules committee. It will be like Saturnalia. Uh, up will be down, down will be up. Uh, actually, it'll just be a cl simple, clean, up or down vote. That's what suspension means. And they don't 
go through the Rules Committee. But I don't know if you remember this from September 30th. In order to pass a bill through suspension, there are rules regarding the suspension of the rules. In order to pass the bill through suspension, the rules dictate Johnson needs two-thirds of the House to vote yes. Right? If the bill had, and it looks like he's going to do it through suspension, had the bill gone through the Rules Committee and then the rules were passed by the full House, then the actual bill would only need to pass with a simple majority. But if the bill doesn't get the Rules Committee's blessing, which it looks like it's not going to, then it's going to be introduced in suspension. That requires a two-thirds majority. That means he'll need Democrats. And in a way, it helps Republican members of the Freedom Caucus. They won't admit it, but it helps them. If you have Democrats voting for the bill, it frees up the hard right fiscal hawks to vote against the bill without actually killing it. Like I said, Mike Johnson was a Freedom Caucus backbencher on the last continuing resolution, and he voted against the last continuing resolution. It passed, but he voted against it. Uh, Democrats stepped in, and he got to vote against it. He got to placate his constituents and his donor base and look like a tough fiscal disciplinarian. One of the reasons he was elected speaker is he got to vote against the current continuing resolution because the Democrats stepped in. Now he's speaker, though, and he can't stand on principle. He's got to keep the government open. Now, how long does he last if he does it this way? Because this is what got Kevin McCarthy axed. The rules regarding vacating the chair, remember that? Uh, they haven't changed. All it takes is one Republican to file a motion to vote on Speaker again. And Matt Gates says he's not going to hold Johnson to the same standard he held Kevin McCarthy because Matt Gates says he likes Mike Johnson, which means they struck a deal on Gates's ethics investigation. But besides Matt Gates, there are a lot of other disgruntled, attention-seeking members of the Republican caucus who came to Washington to do nothing other than be seen and heard. And they're going to make trouble, especially if four or five votes is the difference between the bill passing and not passing. It's a lot of power when it's when the margins are tight. It empowers douchebags like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and the Democratic Party. This is why we need blowout landslides, which are impossible, but I'll talk about that some other time. Uh, there are going to be some really disgruntled members of the Republican House caucus who have too much time on their hands and will start grousing and make life very difficult for Mike Johnson because that's what they do. It's starting to look, for example, 
like the Biden is uh, the Biden impeachment is winding down, not winding up, despite the incessant braying on Fox News and AM talk radio. Hunter Biden's business dealings don't seem like an don't seem like an impeachable offense to most Americans, especially during the 2024 election year. Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, the idea of impeaching them, not polling well for the Republicans. It's like abortion. It's something that Republicans lead with and it's dragging them down. This is going to upset Marjorie Taylor Greene. If Comer kills the impeachment, and he kind of said he will, he said a House oversight, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be pissed, and she already is pissed. She introduced the original articles of impeachment. Marjorie also got delivered a major body blow on Monday night when she learned that her motion to impeach the head of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, got moved to a committee by a vote of 209 to 201, with several Republicans joining Democrats. Moving it to committee means it's going to die there. They do not want to impeach the head of Homeland Security. Green decided to force the House to decide on whether to introduce a vote to impeach the head of Homeland Security. And that prompted about eight Republicans. Remember the crazy eight? Well, there were roughly eight Republicans in the House Monday night. Institutionalists like Ken Buck or Patrick McHenry, remember him with the bow tie? They voted to kill this measure to impeach the head of Homeland Security. They voted to send it into committee. And Marjorie Taylor Greene told CNN, quote, they're going to face their voters. She's talking about her fellow Republicans. They're going to face their voters. I cannot believe this. I am outraged. Really? Marjorie Taylor Greene is outraged. She goes on to say, I can assure you that Republican voters will be extremely angry that they've done this, unquote. So Marjorie, what what does she have to offer other than anger? She's just going to do anger and make Mike Johnson's life difficult. Uh, Especially when Mike Johnson, our speaker, is going to try to pass his continuing resolution through suspension, meaning the Democrats will come on board. And that's sacrilege to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Again, this is precisely how the current continuing resolution got passed through suspension, and it ended up getting McCarthy suspended and fired. Marjorie Taylor Greene bet the wrong horse. She abandoned the Freedom Caucus and hitched her wagon to Kevin McCarthy, And it was a big mistake. So she's just going to make trouble, along with Kevin McCarthy. I'm hearing reports that he's stirring up shit. He doesn't care 
if the government shuts down. He just wants to get even with Matt Gates and Steve Scalise and Speaker Johnson. Chip Roy, the level-headed, calm, and sincere Chip Roy from Texas, is also from the Freedom Caucus, and he serves on the Rules Committee. And on Monday, he took a look at Speaker Johnson's continuing resolution, the the two-step laddered continuing resolution, and he warned that if Johnson tries to pass the CR, the continuing resolution, by suspending the rules, he's committing the same exact sin Kevin McCarthy was guilty of. All right. There was a moment on Monday when Johnson tried to placate the right by trying to dirty up his continuing resolution. I talked about this earlier. He tried to dirty up his continuing resolution by attaching to it a 2024 appropriations bill, which funds the Department of Labor and the Department of Health and Human Services. So this is one-twelfth of the budget. It's one bill, and it covers the funding of the Department of Labor, which we know the Republicans want to eliminate, as well as the Department of Health and Human Services, which we know the Republicans want to eliminate, right? So it's one of 12 appropriation bills. And Republicans, because they hate the fact that money is going towards these two departments, they are making this a particularly controversial spending bill, one the Democrats will not vote for, won't pass in the Senate. Joe Biden would veto it. But Johnson has floated the idea of keeping the government open past November 17th by presenting a clean continuing resolution that keeps spending at 2023 levels, but Democrats in return would be forced to vote yes on a 2024 Department of Labor and Department of Health and Human Services appropriations bill loaded down with riders that, for example, prevent federal dollars from being used on medical training for abortions. Okay, it doesn't end with these people. There's also a writer that they've attached to this appropriations bill preventing the Department of Health and Human Services from going after the Second Amendment by declaring a national health crisis that's been caused by our nation's epidemic of gun violence. We've had uh, state health officials declare a state crisis because of the gun violence, they want to make sure that the Department of Health and Human Services can't do that. There's also a rider preventing the Biden administration from demanding that nursing homes have enough workers on staff. Republicans take donations from nursing home owners. We've privatized nursing homes and they're understaffed. Biden wants to crack down on that because grandma and grandpa are being killed by the for-profit nursing home industry. So the Republicans attached a rider to this appropriations bill, uh, stripping Joe Biden of 
the power to demand that nursing homes have enough workers on staff. It's Republicans taking care of us, right? Another writer to the bill says no money for any schools that uh, participate, uh, that allow transgender athletes to participate in sports. And the list goes on. They just wait way down this appropriations bill. And Johnson on Monday floated the idea of attaching this disgusting pro-gun, anti-LGBTQ, anti-abortion bill. He wanted to attach this bill with all these ugly writers to the continuing resolution to force Democrats into voting for it. He will fail at that. It's not going to happen. But he's going through the motions to, look, I tried. Keep donating. I tried. So here is the problem Speaker Mike Johnson faces from inside his caucus. Elections, they believe, are supposed to have consequences. The Republicans took the House back at the beginning of January. And their mission, their work for all of 2023 was supposed to be centered on passing on October 1st, a 2024 budget, a budget that reflected their values, a major departure from the 2023 budget, which was passed by last year's Democratic majority with Nancy Pelosi at the helm. What they fail to understand is there's a Democrat president and the Senate is controlled by the Democrats. So just because you got the House, that's not a mandate to dictate fiscal policy. But Republicans see non-existent mandates. They just believe that the American people uh, want them to destroy our country. So Republicans took over the House in early January The federal government was operating until October this year on a Pelosi budget. Come October 1st of this year, the 2024 budget was supposed to be passed, and the Republicans want the new budget to reflect the new Congress with severe 30% across the board budget cuts. Well, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen, but that's what they want. Clean continuing resolutions, keeping the government open past October, but at 2023 levels, is perceived as a slight to the hard right fiscal hawks. People like Speaker Mike Johnson, who before he became Speaker, voted against the current continuing resolution because he demanded 30 percent across-the-board cuts. So, now he's introducing the status quo, a clean, continuing resolution that keeps spending at 2023 levels, Nancy Pelosi levels. It's unacceptable to the hard right. It used to be unacceptable to Mike Johnson before he became Speaker 
Mike Johnson. It's why back on October 1st, when McCarthy pushed through a clean continuing resolution, a motion was filed successfully for him to vacate the chair. So, how does Mike Johnson, Speaker Mike Johnson, pass a clean continuing resolution without eliciting the wrath of the far right? Well, one of the things he's doing to placate the hard right is adopting one of their ideas, a laddered continuing resolution or a two-step continuing resolution. If you pay attention to this, you're going to be hearing a lot about a two-step CR, a laddered CR in the future. A, and, and, and I think this is very dangerous. I think a laddered continuing resolution opens the door, not this year, but in the future, for mischief from the hard right. A laddered continuing resolution in the future could change the budget process, I believe, so that Republicans can do what I'm going to call surgical government shutdowns that are precision-based and less politically disadvantageous. See, what Johnson, I believe, is setting the stage for with his laddered, two-stepped continuing resolution is a more palatable government shutdown in the future. A shutdown where the military and most federal employees get their paychecks, where most of the government stays open and everyone appears happy. But the parts of the government that Republicans want to either cut funding for or eliminate entirely will be surgically shut down with a precision that's almost imperceptible to the American people. This laddered two-step continuing resolution will train Congress, train the Budget Committee, it will train Republicans on messaging, it will acclimate the American people to precision-like shutdowns, okay? Theoretically, you could have what most people consider a completely functioning federal government, but without the funding for something like the Department of Education, which the Republicans have been trying to get rid of for 20 years, they can surgically tie it up in committee and keep it unfunded and furlough all the employees of the Department of Education for months or possibly years. <clears throat> but the rest of the government will be running. As I see it, the Department of Education wouldn't be eliminated. Just the people who work for it. And you wouldn't notice that it was happening. It would no longer be funded. And employees would stop getting paid. And then eventually through attrition, as these federal employees realize the department is never going to get funded, they'll all drift off gradually and find other work. This is how Republicans, I believe, plan to eliminate the Department of Education and any other part of the administrative state they've been trying to eliminate and destroy 
since Roosevelt took office, they're going to tie up the funding for these programs and departments they want to destroy. It's very creative thinking. It started with Ronald Reagan. Now, <clears throat> I need some water. Hang on for one second. How am I doing on? Okay. Hang on. Close your ears. I'm an hour into this. <clears throat> okay. So, is anybody still listening? Okay. So, it's very creative thinking. They're good at this. Because it's easy, you know, it's easy to destroy things. And you can do it creatively. It all started with Reagan. Now, Reagan, give you some examples. His own son, Ron Jr., admits Ronald Reagan was a racist. We all knew that. He kicked off his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, lying about welfare queens. I mean, it was... He was a racist. Now, he couldn't eliminate the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. The Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department was established by President Eisenhower in the 50s to make sure the Justice Department enforced civil rights law on behalf of blacks, women, and other minorities. Well, when Reagan took office in 81, he knew he couldn't get rid of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. He wanted to, but he couldn't do that. So what he did instead is nominate William Bradford Reynolds to serve as the United States Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division. Right? Get David Duke to enforce civil rights law. He wasn't that bad. But Reynolds served from 1981 to 1988, and he was chosen by Reagan because Reagan knew William Bradford Reynolds wouldn't enforce civil rights law. By the end of Reynolds' nearly eight years serving as head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, President Johnson's old attorney general, Nicholas Katzenbach, said, quote, under Mr. Reynolds, the Civil Rights Division has changed sides. It no longer is an advocate for blacks or minorities. It has never happened before under a Democratic or Republican president. It didn't happen under Nixon or before that, under Eisenhower. It's a total change of policy. The department is supposed to defend the disadvantaged, the people who are victims of discrimination. Either Mr. Reynolds doesn't understand what civil rights law is about, or he is not interested in the pursuit of equality. Rights for Americans seem to him to mean rights for white males. That's what Reagan, for about eight years, did to the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. We still had a civil rights division in the Justice Department, but by appointing William Bradford Reynolds, it was left to rot on the vine. William Bradford Reynolds, one of the heroes of the Federalist Society. 
Reagan knew you couldn't eliminate the newly created Environmental Protection Agency. Came about in the early 70s under Nixon, I think. He couldn't get rid of the Environmental Protection Agency, but you could appoint someone like Ann Gorsuch to be in charge of it. And Gorsuch was Reagan's first head of the EPA. And everyone said, hey, it's a woman. Wow, you go, girl. Ronald Reagan picked a girl to head the Environmental Protection Agency. See, he's progressive. No, he's not. And Gorsuch was anything but an Earth mother. Her mission was to downsize the EPA. She cut the budget by 22% and made it more business-friendly by not ordering Superfund Superfund sites to get cleaned up, even though money had already been earmarked for it. Uh, I think Governor Jerry Brown was running for Senate while she was EPA administrator and... To embarrass him, she refused to clean up a Superfund site in California. And I don't know what the, disposi- what the disposition of that investigation turned out to be. But she attempted to turn the EPA into a ghost agency. <clears throat> and Gorsuch, her prickish son, Neil Gorsuch, was Donald Trump's very first pick for the Supreme Court. That's who his mother is. Neil Gorsuch's mother was Ann Gorsuch, who led the first assault on the Environmental Protection Agency to get rid of our administrative state. And this is what we're up against writ large now through the Heritage Foundation. Again, the idea, we can't eliminate the EPA, but we can make like it doesn't exist. George W. Bush learned from Ronald Reagan. He made Gail Norton his head of the Interior Department, which grants drilling leases to oil companies. When she left the Bush administration, she went to work for Shell Oil, prompting the Interior Department's Office of Inspector General to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department, alleging she made decisions as Interior Secretary that were beneficial to Shell and was rewarded later by a job with the oil company. The Justice Department decided not to press charges. I first learned about Gail Norton through Bobby Kennedy Jr. He wrote a book about People like Gail Norton, who I think uh, was propped up by the the Coors Brewing family, and she's a dominionist. One of those, I think, according to this book, I read this book like 15 years ago. But according to Bobby Kennedy Jr., she's one of those one of those people who believes the Earth is ours to destroy, and the sooner we destroy it, uh, the quicker. Uh, Jesus comes. I think that's what I read in Bobby Kennedy's book uh, about 15 years ago. I think. I may be wrong. 
I used to really like Bobby Kennedy Jr. Trump named Scott Pruitt to head the EPA and Ryan Zinke to head the Department of Interior. Both men had ties to the companies that their agencies were supposed to be regulating and both were clearly opposed to enforcing any regulations based on climate science. This is the Ronald Reagan playbook, his legacy. He taught a new generation of Republicans you can destroy government programs by neglecting to fund them or by having them run by people who have nothing but contempt for the agency they're in charge of. What a great job that must be, right? You get, you hate, you hate the IRS and they put you in charge to destroy it. You don't have to do anything. You just collect a paycheck. It's a perfect job for country club Republicans to show up and destroy it by not doing anything or by trying to improve it. That's how Republicans can destroy an agency by trying to fix it. Uh, the same goes for the minimum wage. The Republicans have been opposed to a minimum wage since the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed during the Roosevelt administration back in 1938. The, the minimum wage was established through the Fair Labor Standards Act that Roosevelt passed in 1938. So Republicans got rid of the minimum wage. And how do you do that without coming across as cruel and vindictive and greedy? Benign neglect, term Patrick Moynihan came up with and was misused, but benign neglect. If you never raise the minimum wage, inflation will kill it for you. The minimum wage has not been raised since 2009. Now, I have gotten some angry emails from some of my listeners on this. So I'm pushing back now, okay? The minimum wage has not been raised since 2009. It remains stuck at $7.25 an hour times 40. Do the math. That's a week. Can you live on $7.25 an hour times 40, work 40 hours a week, if you're lucky. Joe Biden promised to raise it to 15. That's not going to happen. And I don't see it ever happening. The political will on either side of the aisle to raise the minimum wage in the foreseeable future doesn't exist. Now, I've gotten some angry pushback on this from some listeners. I'm pushing back now. More and more states, this is, I, I agree with the people who push back, yes, more and more states have raised the minimum wage beyond $7.25. Somewhat. And some have. But it means the Republicans won on this issue. They destroyed a federal minimum wage. We've succumbed on the minimum wage to what is called new federalism, giving power back to the states. By not creating a base level at the federal level, 
when it comes to the minimum wage. It encourages states to compete against each other in a race to the bottom to see who can provide the lowest minimum wages in order to attract businesses. This is not good for workers, and it's not good for the states. It's not good. You look at the states that peg their minimum wage to the federal minimum wage at $7.25. Their schools are shot. They, they tend not to expand their Medicaid. They have the sickest, poorest, unhealthiest citizens. Okay? Too many states in America peg their minimum wage to what the federal government dictates, $7.25. North Carolina, one of the original right-to-work states, has kept its minimum wage at $7.25. Multiply that times 40. That's a week's salary. 40 times $7.25. Georgia has kept it at $7.25. In fact, Georgia... I think it's $5 an hour if it doesn't, if the work you're doing is not under the jurisdiction of the Fair Labor Act. I think there are certain jobs in Georgia where it's legal to pay you $5 an hour. I'm not talking about waitressing. Uh, <clears throat> these, are, these are the states where it's still 725. Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, New Hampshire, North Dakota. Is that even a state? North Dakota? What are they just making up places now? North Dakota, Alaska, Louisiana, South Carolina, another original right to work state, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, Utah, Tennessee, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. Now, that's all pegged to the federal minimum wage, $7.25. Now, I know my listeners say, well, the ones who fight me on this, they say, well, some cities in, their, in those states where they leave the minimum wage at $7.25, cities within those states can raise their minimum wages beyond that. Uh, yes, but... It depends on which state you live in. In Kentucky, for example, where the minimum wage is pegged to the federal government's $7.25 an hour, Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, voted to raise the minimum wage. But the Kentucky State Supreme Court ruled it was unconstitutional for Louisville to have a different minimum wage than other cities in Kentucky. The, the, court, the state Supreme Court of Kentucky ruled that cities in Kentucky lack the authority to raise the minimum wage past what the federal government decrees the minimum wage to be. So much for states' rights in the state of Kentucky. Big states' right state, right, Kentucky? Except when it comes to the minimum wage. Then the federal government... Only the federal government can set the minimum wage. So I have received pushback on this from listeners who insist 
The minimum wage is a non-issue when it comes to the federal level because the states are raising it. I've gotten a couple of angry emails. By the way, correct me in the comments sections if I got any of this wrong, but uh, they're saying it's being taken care of on a state level. You can clearly see from what I'm telling you that most states are not raising it beyond $7.25 an hour. And the ones, the states that have raised it beyond $7.25 an hour aren't raising it by much. The high end of the raising the minimum wage is in places like New York or California where it's $15 an hour. But you can scan the rest of the states, the states that aren't pegged to the federal government, $7.25 an hour. And what do you see? You see mostly $9 an hour. If you're lucky, $10 an hour. Why is that? Because the federal government, by not raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, by not raising it, by not creating a base level, they're creating a competition among all 50 states, a competition in a race to the bottom. So with all due respect to my listeners who insist the minimum wage has now become a state issue, I'm afraid you're wrong. The $7.25 minimum wage is very much alive in most states. And if it's not $7.25, it's $8 or $9. And it's dragging down wages in top-tier states like Washington State, New York, or California, where it's $15 an hour. $15 an hour, my friends, is, do the math. What is $15 an hour times 40? Now, I'm not good at math, but I have it at $600 a week. That's if you're getting $15 an hour. So, how do you pay rent? You're, you know, single mom. Let's, Let's say single mom. How do you pay rent? Half of all renters in America live at or below the poverty line. And half of their weekly paycheck goes towards rent. This is uh, serfdom. So $600 a week, single mom. How do you pay health care? Maybe you're in a state where they took the Medicaid expansion, but you have co-pays. How do you do uh, dental and eyes? How do you pay for food? Uh, how do you pay for gas? If you've got a kid, who pays for your daycare? It's not free in this country. And how do you pay back your student loans? Well, you don't. You're given a credit card. If the federal government, on the other hand, set a base by raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it would create a bottom 
and in turn, a race to the top. States would be competing for workers instead of corporations. And they would compete for workers by raising the minimum wage. The way it's set up now is states are competing for jobs by lowering the minimum wage. They're competing for companies to bring low-paying non-union jobs to their states. And that is reflected in the uh, the opiate addictions, the, the dropout rates, the suicide rates, the obesity, the poverty, the Joe Manchin of it all. The Joe Manchin of it all. Nobody benefits. Now, Joe Manchin, Satan, Joe Manchin, says uh, raising the minimum wage is going to cause inflation. No, no, it only cuts a tiny, doesn't cause, cause inflation. And the problem is the, the short-sighted bosses think it, it's going to cut into their bottom line. Uh, it doesn't. With Americans getting paid livable wages, they can buy more. And that increases overall sales down the line. That's not me speaking. Those are the words of well-respected, virulent anti-Semite publisher of the Protocols of the Elders, Henry Ford. Henry Ford knew that. He used to say, I pay my auto workers a livable wage because people who have a livable wage can buy more automobiles. So why is the minimum wage so low if it has zero effect on inflation and little effect on profits? Compliance. In America, workers are supposed to do what they're told. It's about power. It's like abortion. It's about power over women. This is about power over workers. Not productivity, not efficiency, just power. Being able to swing your dick. And when you have low wages, then the workers are more likely to do what they're told. When, when wages are low across the board and workers have zero options, they show up to work and it's yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, yes, no, ma'am, whatever you say, sir, it's making America great again. You know, the 50s, the 1850s. This is what they want at the top. They hate the fact that workers might have leisure time and are happy. They don't want that. They really don't. I think my older listeners know I'm right. Uh, I think a lot of young people think the job, the boss is going to love you back. When you get to a certain age, you realize that the boss hates you even more than you hate the boss. Why? Because they want power, so they're sexually dysfunctional. 
they're rotting inside, they're, they're hateful, and they want to just, it's, it's a animal instinct to want to control another human being. That's one of the ugliest impulses that humans have, the, to have power over another person. That's why we keep wages so low in America, just to have power over somebody else, to be able to humiliate somebody, to have somebody serve you, make certain people feel good, to be served. So, what was I talking about? The GOP. The GOP eliminated the minimum wage just by forcing the federal government to neglect it. And that goes back to Speaker Mike Johnson's laddered two-step continuing resolution. Mike Johnson is going to expand upon this. He's making it easier to neglect other parts of the Roosevelt New Deal, other parts of Johnson's Great Society, all the agencies and spending programs Republicans have been trying to eliminate for decades, this laddered two-step continuing resolution is the first step in a budget process where Republicans start stripping out parts of the budget they don't like, <coughs> and instead of shutting down the entire federal government, they're going to shut down parts of the federal government they've been wanting to eliminate for decades. These people are dangerous. They have an army of 54,000 Trump loyalists who are being vetted right now by the Heritage Foundation. It's Project 2025. It's Agenda 47. They're coming in. They want to eliminate all of these federal agencies and create a Hobbesian nightmare where the people who have the guns and the money control the streets. That's their vision for America. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. 